future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Do I have to change that intro? I don't think so. Hey, oh, there we go. Now I actually sound like a, a person. It's Roddy Mysterioso, as promised. It's Chris O'Brien calling in here at the uh, at the final second because I forgot my phone. I told him the trickster is probably playing with us. Let's see if we can hear Chris here on the phone. Can you hear me, Chris? Chris sent me. I said, uh, do you want some kind of an intro? He's like, uh, yeah, I think I better send you one because all, all I do is go, this is Chris. He's a great guy. I'm going to read Chris's um, actual uh, intro here that he sent me, which is what all radio shows do. Don't kid yourself. From 1992 to 2002, Christopher O'Brien in- investigated and logged almost 1,000 unusual rep- events reported in the San Luis Valley located in the south-central Colorado, north-central New Mexico area, working with law enforcement officials, ex-military ranchers, and an extensive network of sky watchers, he documented what may have been the most intense wave of unexplained activity ever seen in a single region of North America. His 10-year investigation resulted in three books of his Mysterious Valley trilogy, namely The Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, and Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. His meticulous field investigation of UFO reports, unexplained livestock deaths, Native American legends, cryptozoology, secret military activity, and the folklore found in the world's largest Alpine Alpine Valley has produced one of the largest databases of unusual occurrences gathered from a single geographic region. He is currently working with a team of specialists installing a high-tech video surveillance and hard data monitoring system in and around the San Luis Valley. His latest book is Stalking the Tricks and it's just been released by Adventures Unlimited Press, our friend David Childress. This controversial book distills his years of field investigation and research into an ingenious, unified paranormal theory that is sure to create a stir. Right? I I would hope it's going to create a stir. If not, I didn't do something right. Well, I think you did something right, because I read the first chapter, and you're right. It's a a kick in the head. I really liked it. I agreed with everything in it, unfortunately. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, go ahead. It's good to be back on, Greg. This is like my my home away from home on the air. Yeah, I think it's um, basically. I think it's. I, I put this up on UFO Mystic. I think it's your fourth 
appearance on Radio Mysterioso. There was two that that are radioforall.net, one that's on radiomysterioso.com, the site, and now this one. And I wanted to do it because I talked to you after the Coast to Coast interview. We talked for what, like three hours? Yeah, it was all night. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, and at the end, I just thought, well. Well, we got to have Chris on again because, you know what, there's stuff in this book that was not in the Mysterious Valley books, at least not in an obvious way, and um, I think it's important, great stuff, and it's written for a, um, a wide audience. People who are probably, of course, interested in this, this uh, subject and how the trickster, which we'll get into, um, affects it, um, makes its influence known, and... Um, it's just something people have not really talked about a lot, uh, with the exception of George Hansen, but his was mostly to do with, um, one, the theoretical side, and two, um, very heavily involved with his um, uh, 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 para- parapsychology research. And Chris comes right, at it from a different angle. He went into the whole idea of using trickster tactics um, to enact agendas like the intelligence services do, and... and uh, basically the status quo, the control structure that kind of runs rough out over the rest of us. Uh, he, uh, he died, he really dove into all that. He didn't, even though it's called Trickster and the Paranormal, the Paranormal really wasn't, I don't think, the focus of, of his work. And I, I did rely on uh, several of his concepts uh, when, I, when I worked on my book. And I do recommend uh, uh, Hanson's book. It's one of the finest books ever written about the Trickster, if not the finest. That's really cool of you to say that, Chris, because a lot of times when you talk to people and they, they have knowingly used ideas from other people, um, credit is not given, and um, it's refreshing that somebody actually does that. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm, on, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I just, uh, you know, I must say that uh, in the foreword, uh, David Perkins does a really good job of laying out how the various uh, anthropologists and um, and people that have looked at the trickster, uh, you know, and written books about it, and actually um, uh, done quite a bit of research in in this in this particular very not well known field, uh, he points out how and and ufologists too, like Jacques Fillet and John Keel, how everybody brings it to a certain point, but then they they don't take it to that next level, and that's what I was really uh, that was my main focus in writing this book is is taking it to the next level. Uh, the whole subject, and uh, I'm sure you know we we can go uh, quite a bit in depth uh, into you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. Um, well, you know what? Maybe we had it better, better define a term. Let's define the term trickster as you used it in the book. Everybody knows. Well, a lot of people listening probably know, think they know what it means, or have their own de- definition. What was the one you used? Well, I I first uh, I first looked at Carl Jung's uh, um, definition and. And I also um, I, I'm I'm relying heavily on Jung, Jung's idea of the collective unconscious um, and his very um, astute classification of primordial collective images and, and symbols within the collective unconscious uh, that he named archetypes. And basically, I'm coming from a place of of looking at this particular force uh, within all cultures. Uh, the trickster. Um, I'm looking at it from a Jungarian sort of archetypal uh, point of view, and uh, basically, the trickster is one of a of a group of ancient primordial symbols 
um, that have become uh, that have faces on them, basically, all except one uh, real basic one, which is the shadow, would be your most basic archetypal uh, form. Uh, closely after the shadow would be the trickster, which is the first of the archetypal forms that actually is personified or has has some sort of face on it, if you will. Then, of course, you have the gods and goddesses, the hero, um, the animus uh, would be another example. Uh, the mantra is a, uh, is a symbolic archetypal form that's found in all cultures. And these are very, very deeply rooted into the collective psyche uh, and unconscious of, of humanity and do reflect um, connection points uh, that exist between all cultures, even though, uh, you know, cultures evolve and, and you know, they, they, they go through a long history and become unique in their own way through their own sort of separate evolutionary process uh, culturally. But at the very core, we do have these archetypal forms that um, are found in all cultures, but they just have their own sort of uh, cultural interpretation or bias uh, when it relates to them. The trickster is, is, a, is, a, is a liminal... Um, anti-structural force, basically. The trickster's main role is to break down structure in um, societal and cultural um, structures that, that tend to become entrenched and, 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 and become static. The trickster is the force that, that creates tension between binary opposites and, and introduces novelty and change into a static um, structure. And also, the, the trickster has a habit of shaking up the control mechanism that keeps the status quo and the structure in, in a particular place. And uh, that's why I, I feel the trickster is very important when looking at uh, current world events. I think we're, we're in, a, in a very, very tricksterish period right now in history. And um, I'm sure as we go along in the uh, interview, I'll, I'll be coming up with some pretty interesting examples of what I'm talking about. Tricksters can be divided into three different distinct categories. The first category would be the most ancient and primal version, which is found in, in most indigenous cultures around the world, and uh, has to do with the anthropomorphization of animal forms uh, in, onto the trickster. A good example, of course, is, is probably the most well-known would be coyote, is considered a trickster in the North American, uh, Native American tradition, many of them, not all, but many of them. Raven is another one. Um, Anansi, which is a spider form, um, is found in Africa as a trickster. Um, Iktomi is uh, the Native American version of the spider trickster. And you just go down the list, and, and you know, tricksters, tricksters uh, around the world, uh, you know, tricksterism is ascribed to, uh, to animals. And, and basically what, what these animals uh, do and what their role is, is to change Gaia, to, to create some sort of change in the natural order of things that benefits humanity. Um, one example would be Kappa, who is um, the Kappas uh, in Maui in particular, is a trickster form found in, in the Pacific. And uh, the people didn't have enough time to do their work, so Kappa arranged and went up and made sure that the sun, pushed the sun higher in the sky so the people had more time to do their work and uh, had more daylight would be an example. Raven uh, is an example uh, in the Northwest Indian uh, tradition here in North America. Um, Raven brought uh, daylight to humanity. And if you go around the world, you'll find that there's a lot of tricksters 
um, that have an animal form that are in, involved in bringing the ancient stories and the um, oral tradition to the people. In other words, uh, the stories that, that give them their identity are generally brought down from heaven or supplied to the people. That's the most primal and ancient uh, trickster form. The second one is the tragic hero. And that's a trickster form that is it has a is more of a has more of a human face on it. A uh, famous one would be uh, Loki, who is the Scandinavian trickster, and uh, Prometheus is another one from the Greek uh, traditional uh, uh, myths and legends. Uh, Prometheus, of course, stole fire from Zeus, um, angering Zeus. So Zeus had him chained to a rock and sent his eagle down to pick out his liver every day, and it would heal at night and eagle would come back and do it again. Um, there are many forms of this um, primordial uh, human-type trickster. The third, and, and probably the most uh, common, and, and the version that I think most people would recognize today in the modern world, is the shamanic form of, of the trickster. It's a human person that uses trickster tactics um, to create anti-structural situations and to provide uh, novelty and change. Of course, we have in many Native American tribes, we have uh, clown societies. Like in the Lakota tradition, you have the Hayokas. And uh, basically, they're, they're like the, the fool in, in medieval Europe or the, uh, the court jester or the harlequin. Um, they're very nonsensical. They're, they're profane. They're rude. Um, they can uh, supply, you know, jokes and uh, humor at times when things are really tense and, and it tends to break the tension. Um, generally, uh, tricksters are amoral in the traditional anthropological sense. They don't have any real sense of right and wrong. They don't supposedly have a real particular agenda. It's almost like your little three-year-old nephew who bashes his little sister on the head with a, with a, a bat and, and wonders why everybody's so upset at him. He doesn't realize that it's bad to do that. So, so that's kind of an amoral sense that the trickster has in classic anthropological sense. Now, anthropology, all, all the guys that I read, um, Lewis Hyde, who wrote uh, Trickster Makes This World, um, Paul Radin, who wrote the seminal work in 56, called The Trickster, Carl Jung, George Hansen, um, they all tend to um, suggest that the trickster is a, a static form that it's not conscious and that it doesn't evolve. And one of the first things that I did was refute that and say, well, wait a minute, we live in a very um, changing reality. It's always evolving. So if, let's suppose that the trickster is evolving, and let's also suppose that perhaps the trickster is actually becoming conscious. And once you've made that leap, then you're able to then factor in other, other things about the trickster that... Um, that the conventional anthropological view wouldn't normally allow for. So I know you're probably hoping for a short definition, but this is really complicated no. territory, as, as we'll <laughs> find out during the interview. And and it does take a little bit of front, uh, you know, sort of introductory information to try to get uh, get the definition across to people. And uh, I'm just barely scratching the surface with this. Yeah, but I know. That, that gives everybody at least a sense of what the trickster is. Yeah, I know. The, um, there's a sense that people have that the trickster is something that screws everything up, that uh, is disorder. But the the fact is that um, in a lot of cultures, 
it uh, introduces novelty and um, uh, and change in things. Uh, one thing I had a show on uh, was about comedy and what is its role in society. And of course, uh, I had a friend on, and we discussed what you discussed about the court jester and how sometimes the a wise ruler would listen to him because he had uh, basically a license to say whatever he wanted to say because advisors and people like that would not say exactly what they wanted to say for fear of reprisal. And the fool, um, the, the, that form of the trickster, was, was uh, left alone because he would say things straight and couch it as, a, as something that was funny, which is what comedians do now, good ones. They tell us what's wrong with the society and what should, you know, maybe how to change it, but basically make us laugh at something and realize, yeah, there's something wrong here. That's in a really important role uh, for the shamanic uh, tricks to form. Absolutely, and uh, I, I think that we're seeing um, we're seeing very uh, interesting. Uh, we're, we're living in interesting times, and uh, we're seeing the more things uh, tend to become more confusing, and and they seem uh, more dire, and it's like like things are structures are falling apart and and breaking down all around our ears. Um, these are times that are ripe for a trickster energy to come in and supply us with something to hold on to. And whether it's a, a good punchline on a joke uh, after a bad day, a, a week at work, or um, uh, reading a funny cartoon, or uh, turning on the TV and, and uh, being a little kid and seeing Ronald McDonald, uh, or, or going out trick-or-treating, uh, or going to a masquerade ball and wearing a costume. These are all ways that we introduce inadvertently because most people don't realize where these traditions come from the clown figures and, and masks and these sort of things these are all vestiges or, or hold you know held over elements of tricksterism that has as they've survived in, in the modern world right um, yeah and it, you, you would figure you need more of these things I mean that's why Johnny Carson was so uh, popular and, and anybody like this or, or you know even more relevant as you're talking about uh, uh, current state um, watching something like um, uh, Daily Report. Right, or Stephen Colbert, exactly. The Daily Show, the, I think the Daily more, Show, sorry. Uh, people the age, you know, from 18 to 35 that get their news from the Daily Show than any network, uh, <laughs> any network news broadcast. So that, that gives you a real sense of, of how important uh, when 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 the times get tough and and things seem to get a little dire, it's much easier to deal with um, dire situations and and uh, the sound of things falling apart uh, when it's coming from a humorous uh, place. Uh, it's much more palatable. It's it's much easier to uh, to put into a, a context that doesn't totally freak you out. Put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Or something that would normally freak you out, but to find the humor in it and lessen the shock or the um, psychological uh, uh, negativity of it so that you can deal with it and, and either move on or fix the problem or whatever you want to do. Um, right, or, or like me, turn your TV off six months ago and refuse to watch it. <laughs> yeah, or you could do that too. I, 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 For some reason, I just can't get away from... Uh, TV, but I only watch it once, once or two or three, every two or three days. And you know what's funny? Only the only thing I watch is um, South Park, which is a trickster thing. 
or um, uh, documentaries or baseball. That's about it, and the occasional movie. Uh, how did you, um, you know, the, you experience a lot of this stuff that you talk about in the book, so I think that's kind of your attempt to make sense of it, but why, how did you pick this subject for, um, it's your fourth book, right? Uh, well, fifth, sixth if you count my kids' book, but uh, it's my fourth published book, yeah. Yeah, why, why did you make the decision to write about the trickster? How did that manifest in your mind as saying, this is something I could do a whole book about? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, David Childress, my publisher, who's uh, become uh, a real good friend, uh, he said, hey, it's about time for you to write your first Beyond the Mysterious Valley book. He said, why don't you write a book about skinwalkers? He, just, he loves that, that subject of skinwalkers or, or uh, Dene, Navajo and Apache uh, black magicians, yeah. if you will who are also uh, uh, rep- reportedly shapeshifters, the, the real ones, can shapeshift into animal forms. And um, having already done some research into that subject, I, I told him right off that I didn't even think I could come up with enough material to do a magazine article, let alone a, write a whole book on it. And I blurted out, how about if I write about tricksters? Uh, I, don't think, I don't know where it came from, but <laughs> he grabbed a hold of it and said, yeah, that's a great idea, do that. So, yeah. uh I spent a year researching it and writing it, and um, I, I just, you know, there were several points uh, during that process where I, I literally would have to uh, gobble aspirin and and turn turn my lights off in my room and just close my eyes because my head hurt from thinking so so much. With my first books, they were basically more of reportage, more of a journalistic thing where. You just have, you know, a lot of events that you string together and just kind of create a narrative. This is a book that really requires uh, quite a bit of of work in terms of putting together very complicated subject matter in a in a way that that, that is accessible for people. And and also, um, I think one of the reasons why I chose this subject was because I have experienced um, out in the field as a field investigator events that absolutely made no sense. And we've, we've talked about quite a number of these events in, in past broadcasts. Um, but uh, one of the things that I, I really felt early on was there was some sort of tricksterish energy that was behind uh, uh, quite a number of the events that I was <clears throat> excuse me, called out to investigate. And I've always kind of had a sense of this, but I never really were, was in a place, I think, of clarity and of... of you know, I, I've, I've analyzed my data, I've looked for patterns, I, I've, you know, I've really, really scrutinized it for 10 years, really analyzed it. And the only theory that makes sense that could possibly overlay into many, if not most, of these paranormal uh, appearing events would be a trickster form. So this is my, for all the people that complain that... <laughs> <laughs> well, you you have all these this great stuff in there, but you never tell us what you think. You know, uh, my my buddy from uh, roommate from college uh, read my book and said, he said, "Dude, this was so good, but it was it was like making love all night and never coming." You know, <laughs> was his 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 review of my mysterious valley book. So, so this is one big uh, uh, this is one big <laughs> orgasmic squirt. Uh, <laughs> In terms of my thinking, I guess. Uh, Chris, you can say anything you want on this show, and you already know that. (laughs) So you couldn't say this on Coast to Coast or maybe on any other show you've been on. You can say whatever the hell you want. I don't think I would have probably used that particular analogy, no. I think you should have, Um, you know. 
<laughs> Maybe when I get a little bit more uh, confident in the subject matter, I might, uh, uh, you know, play hey. the part of my uh, subject. Uh, you sound confident enough to but, me, but go ahead. Well, basically what I'm saying is I, I, I really do feel that I've come up with a... Um, I, I equate the trickster as a causal agent uh, in the modern world, and in, in, especially in paranormal um, theorizing uh, about the paranormal. I, I've come up with an analogy that it's an 8,000-pound gorilla that's sitting in everybody's living room drumming its toes on the coffee table, and everybody's in complete denial. That, or, or, they're totally blind to the fact that there's an 8,000-pound gorilla sitting in the room with them. And um, I, I really have a sense that the trickster... Because of its very nature, it's self-negating, and um, you, you, it, it's very slippery. It's like trying to capture mercury, which is uh, the title of one of the chapters. Of, yeah, which is my my chapter zero in my book is trapping mercury. It's it's it, it, mercury, of course, uh, and Hermes being trickster forms in the Greek and Roman uh, pantheons of gods. So, so the trickster theory, I think, is my best attempt to come up with a unifying underlying explanation for most, if not many, many, if not most, paranormal events. Why, how did, you know, I, you said that we've talked about it before, but um, do you have, I guess it was a concatenation of a whole bunch of things, but do you, do you have like a specific time where you just said, my God, oh, you yeah. know, there's got to be, there, some, yeah. you know, like they say in um, Discordianism, which is another subject, um, somebody right. had to put all this confusion here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I can uh, pin it down to a single single event. Um, I received, uh, you know, two weeks into my initial investigation in the San Luis Valley in the uh, winter of 1993. Um, you know, I gave a New Year's Eve party and found out a whole bunch of people in the party had seen this incredible UFO sighting. And then as I'm sort of interviewing everybody uh, separately, I... Uh, one of them chimed in. That was the same night that there was a cattle mutilation down in Costilla County. And that really, I thought, hey, what a great little article from my local newspaper. And so I started doing research um, into the cattle death phenomenon and found out that my county, in uh, Swatch County in, in Colorado, had no official reports of cattle, cattle mutilations, uh, especially in the 70s when there were hundreds in the valley. And I, I knew that this was probably wrong, but I wanted to find out if there were any cases. So I went to the county sheriff and, and said, hey, do you have any information on, on these unusual livestock deaths that you know probably occurred in the 70s? And you know, he kind of joked with me and said he didn't even have files on, on human murder cases from back then, but he looked for me, and he did, and found 24 photographs. And uh, with the help of a, of a retired deputy, I was able to ID. There was only writing on two of the pictures, so... It was just a collection of pretty, you know, ghastly um, dead animals, basically. And I was able to ID all the ranches and all the cases. And the one closest to me was the first one I went out on, and that was in the adjoining town. And 13 years after their bull had been mutilated, I went out and found out that they had this uh, antique yellow helicopter that had flown out of their field um, the night, you know, that their, their prized seed bull had been mutilated. And, uh, you know, they called all around southern Colorado and northern New Mexico, airports and mechanics and anybody that could possibly uh, tell them where this strange, uh, you know, whirly bird, Korean War 
helicopters could have come from, and everybody laughed at them and said, they, they, nobody flies these things anymore. They're, they're in museums. They're antiques. It would be astronomically expensive to fly something like this around. Yeah. Only had a range of 90 miles. And so the next morning, this is 13 years after they saw the helicopter, the next morning I'm in my, um, you know, having my cup of coffee, typing up my notes, and I hear this thump, thump, thump sound, and I look out my window, and what flies right over my house? An antique yellow whirlybird helicopter. Instantly, I knew that this was not <laughs> aliens from another planet, that there was something else going on. And uh, ever since then, I've always had a sense that there's some some form of tricksterish element that is uh, that is uh, somehow attendant to all these uh, phenomenal events. Yeah, it, it's um, it it happens after a while. If you um, to a few different researchers, and I think uh, a lot of people that do this. They choose to ignore the the stuff that doesn't fit, as um, uh, I think John Keel called it, and definitely when I spoke with Carla Turner when she was alive, that's what she called it. Uh, even um, uh, Heineck, Jan Allen Heineck said the same thing. That some of the answers will probably come from some of the stuff that we ignore, and a lot of people right. ignore these connections because they're so focused on Bigfoot or so focused on UFOs or ghosts or whatever the hell they're looking at. But you had all this stuff going on in the San Luis Valley, right? Exactly, and, and, and probably the most uh, variety and intensity of unusual occurrences uh, of anywhere that I've ever heard of uh, in this country. And um, there's just no way that these things are mutually exclusive. Um, you know, I, I also was very, very aware of, of strange weather, um, unusual military uh, activity, apparent military activity, strange uh, aberrant social behavior, um, you know, stuff having to do with ritual occult crimes and, and supposed uh, ritual activity uh, and occult activity. And I noticed a, a real correlation between outbreaks of strange, um, you know, societal uh, events and uh, strange weather, even and um, you know a flap of UFO sightings over you know a period of time, or, or uh, you know, cases of, of livestock deaths, for instance. And you know I'm a person that, that tends to to look for correlations when I'm dealing with any any sort of subject um, and investigation, and so I'm I'm, I'm always keenly aware of of uh, attendant events. I don't have blinders on. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and, and what you were just pointing out is that there's a lot of people out there that are that call themselves ghost hunters or UFO investigators, and that's that's what they do, and they don't want to hear about anything else. Uh, David Perkins went to Missouri in seven in the 70s, and and uh, was was investigating some some a whole flurry of livestock deaths, and found out Bigfoot had been had been spotted, and that there had been UFO sightings, and all the investigators who were on the ground there at the time. Uh, you know, uh, doing their own investigations of, of these events, didn't want to hear about <laughs> about the other stuff. They said, well, I'm, I, I just want to deal with the UFOs, or I'm just here to deal with, with the cattle or whatever. And, and he just couldn't, he couldn't understand how people could be so um, intellectually um, blind and, and, and not curious uh, about, you know, possible correlations between these things. Well, maybe that, that's a manifestation of, of that element, the trickster element, to use people's own psychology against them, where you, like you said, something staring you in the face, or the the 
the elephant or the gorilla sitting in the room, but nobody wants to acknowledge it because their minds are so bifurcated between, you know, my subject and something else has nothing to do with it. Right, exactly. And that, that's, I think that's been a major stumbling block, especially in ufology, um, where people go into investigative uh, scenarios or, or, you know, reports or, or flaps of activity already front-loaded to the point where they, they think that they figured it out. And basically by investigating, what they're doing is running around looking for the data to support their already foregone conclusion. And that's not, that's not the proper way to, to approach any sort of investigative work. And I, I you know, I, <laughs> it's a, a constant, uh, you know, kind of looking in the mirror type reminder to myself not to be closed-minded, not to have blinders on, to always be open uh, for... Uh, potential correlations and to write everything down because oftentimes you don't even realize that there's a there's a correlation until you go back and look at your the timing of your data look at your your your, your timeline and and see how certain things ebb and flow and tend it's like a dance of uh, unusual occurrences that seems to be going on that goes across the board it's it's not you know one or two or three things it's, it's generally a constellation of events and and what appear to be non-related, uh, when you look back at it, it, it all of a sudden <laughs> there seems to be connecting points all over the place. And, and I'm really surprised that nobody has actually come up with the idea of a trickster force as being potentially behind this uh, this subject and, and these subjects. And, you know, Jacques Vallée in his book, Passport to Magonia, excellent book on a tying in, you know, the whole... You know, tradition of elementals in Celtic countries to uh, to monster right, right. uh, reports. Uh, basically, he he uh, came up with the idea that you know during the Middle Ages, all all the way up until the you know 18th and 19th centuries, elementals, leprechauns, gnomes, fairies, brownies, trolls, uh, goblins, banshees, sylphs, you know, all these various uh, hundreds of different types of elemental forms. Um, he equated them with um, aliens and UFOs in the modern age. That, that, that in his basic postulation was that that the modern version of these things are just updated versions of what were reported as these elemental forms for hundreds of years. And but he never once brings the whole idea of the trickster into it. Not once. He never mentions the word once. Keel, another one. One of my you know all-time favorite. Uh, writers, uh, I dedicated my book to John Keel, this, this latest book. Keel mentions that they're trickster-like and that they, they sometimes uh, use, play tricks on us and they try to confound us, but he never once states that they could be the trickster. And, uh, it, it, you know, George Hansen never equates UFOs uh, in, in a way that would indicate that tricksters could be a causal agent behind uh, behind many, if not most, UFO sightings, in my opinion. And uh, so, you know, like I said at the, at, the, at the start here, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, but I'm taking, I'm taking the ball down the field uh, one step, uh, several steps further, because none of these uh, giants uh, ever took that next step. And, 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 you know, they never really uh, became liminal and, and crossed through this threshold, uh, crossed through the door. What would you say to somebody that's... Uh says that, well, there's always a... Uh, I'm doing a devil's advocate thing here. I'm being a trickster. Exactly. <laughs> that um, um, theories, maybe theories are like assholes or something like that, where whereby that you've taken a 
concept and kind of stuffed your um, your own opinion into it. Because I happen to agree with you. I, I think it's a great idea. I don't know if it's the solution, but I also think it's a um, it's a whenever there's a new way to look at something that might bear some fruit, I'm always excited. So what would you say to somebody that says you're just you're just stuffing a bunch of stuff into 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 your own theory? I'd say I appreciate the compliment, and uh, you really get my point. I'm being the trickster by addressing tricksters, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know you should be laughing. Uh, I'm I'm giving you a, you know a 400 page punchline. Uh, you know what, what can you say? Um, I think if I was just an armchair theorist and I was sitting back reading a bunch of books and then pontificating. Uh, uh, in, in such a way to, to make facts conform to my to my theory, that would be one thing. But this is the result of many years of interviewing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, documenting uh, somewhere around a thousand different events, uh, going out, getting my hands dirty, uh, putting the Vicks under my nose at, at the cattle uh, sites, having big burly ranchers crying on my shoulders, uh, being a paranormal shrink when people have total life uh, changing experiences with uh, non-human entities. I've been out there. I've seen the effect of these things on people. I don't sit back and 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 not do the work. I, I actively go out and do the work. Uh, I did for many years. You know, I put 300 plus thousand miles on my truck in six years. Uh, you know. It, it, if I hadn't done all those things, I would say that that would be, you know, that I, I wouldn't have a leg to stand on to uh, to even answer that question. But since since I have gone out and, you know, helped design the T-shirt factory, um, you know, I'm going to wear one of my T-shirt designs. Well, you, you know what? That's a that's a great answer. It's like, well, when you answered that a little earlier, you said, well, I came upon it just by all the weirdness that was just uh, being sh- uh, thrown in my face. Right. Kind of hard to, you know, to not believe your own eyes or trust your own experience. I'm, I'm a pretty bright guy. I, I do consider myself to be, you know, healthily skeptical about a lot of things. And um, but I am open-minded. I, I try not to factor anything in or out. When I first started my investigative work in '93, uh, like most people, I had been programmed by the culture to believe that all this stuff was due to aliens and, and uh, from another planet. And you know, when that helicopter event happened, I mean, that, that just, I did an absolute complete about face and, and just instantly knew that something far more complicated, far more involved, far more puzzling and uh, difficult was, was operative. And, you know, I'm, I am a bit of an au contrarian anyway. People say, keep your eyes to the skies. They put your ear to the ground. You know, I'm just one of those kind of guys. Um, I tend to, you know, not go with the crowd. Um, I always, like you, I'm, I'm, uh, I like to play devil's advocate and, and be the trickster sometimes. And, and it, you'll find oftentimes in field investigative work that, that um, being a trickster really does um, pr- produce results. Uh, I think more, there's more depth to the results that you can uh, produce. For yeah. instance, um, I would hear about a, a rancher that had a you know particularly horrifying uh, cattle case, and uh, you know like a neighbor or a relative would call me and tell me about it. He wouldn't report it. He wouldn't want to talk about it to anybody. 
and I, I'd call him up and just say, hey, it's uh, Chris O'Brien. Um, you know, I'm just calling up to see how you're doing. You know, I talked to your friend, your your neighbor or something uh, the other day, and, and uh, you know, they su- suggested I should give you a call. And, and I'll, I'll carry on a whole conversation with him and never ask him about what I'm calling about. And I'll hang up. I'll end the conversation, you know, and then I'll call back a, a few days or weeks later. Hey, how you doing? How's your kid's basketball team? What do you think of the price of beef? Man, right. that was a nasty hailstorm. I'm oh, just calling to check in. Uh, good talking to you. Bye. And after about the third or fourth time, generally, they, they just <laughs> they can't restrain themselves. They blurt out <laughs> the story. But I never ask them for it. Yeah. So this reverse psychology, I think, that... Uh, that is very tricksterish in its own way, that um, tends to be a good investigative tool for all you aspiring field investigators out there. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's funny. Somebody will, out of the context of a, you know being at a UFO convention or something like that, if you're talking to somebody, the few people I've talked to like that, I try, like you do, even though I have nowhere near the experience, start out with something mundane. Right. And let them direct the conversation. They know right. why you're there. Exactly. And if you start out asking about something completely mundane or off the subject, it makes people feel a little bit easier about telling you something that you wouldn't normally tell. Instead of walking up and saying, how big was it? What, what size were the alien's hands? It's like, you know, that, that's scary to people because immediately they're put on the spot. And, it, and it's a weird thing. I mean, to even talk about this for most people is... And if it's in their personal lives, it's not. People are going to think they're nuts. So if you're talking about well, something exactly totally mundane, stranger. go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, especially if you're a stranger and, and they've never met you before. Right, right. It makes it doubly difficult. Yeah. So it's and then and people will open up. I mean, and this is not in the con. You know, you can be at a party or whatever, and people are going to say something. It's all the context. Uh, Right, or or as uh, uh, Larry would say, set and setting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny that because uh, when you and I were talking, we found out we uh, kind of read and listen to the same kind of things that really have not much to do with UFOs, you know, like Leary or Robert Downtown Wilson or or Terrence um, McKenna. A Terrence McKenna. Well, I've or, been on a Terrence McKenna uh, rage lately. Yeah, I've been, uh, listening to dozens of his uh, lectures and workshops and stuff. What an amazing uh, guy he was. I think he's come up with a, the the best uh, theory for alien life on this planet that anybody's come up with. Which was? Uh, it makes so, so much more sense. He says instead of being, you know, really uh, obvious and overt, uh, like the childhood's end, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, parking the big ships over cities for uh-huh. two or three generations. Um, he says that he would think that something that's light years ahead of us in terms of their development and technology would do some sort of conditioning uh, program uh, to to study a culture or to influence a culture, uh, a planet. And so his idea of, of uh, cubensis, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, as being uh, kind of like in the in the panspermia idea of, of uh, introducing mushrooms uh, into the ecosystem as psychoactive sort of agents of change uh, makes so much more uh, sense to me. Mushrooms are extremely uh, unlike anything else on the planet in terms of a life form. They're one of the few life forms that can actually uh, survive the vacuum of space, lay dormant for thousands of years, and then uh, come back to life. Um, they're they're a plant trickster. They don't, need, uh, 
need to be pollinated. Um, and his whole idea of dimethyltryptamine and other psychoactive substances being introduced into primitive cultures and then the effect of that uh, sort of distilling out through the shamanic traditions uh, would have a real profound uh, conditioning effect, uh, you know, over millennia on, uh, on human culture. And so, you know, people say, well, do you believe in aliens? And I tell them, well, you know, first of all, I think we're more alien than the aliens. I think they're more terrestrial than we are, uh, is my stock flippant sort of trickster answer. But I think right. McKenna's idea of, of psychoactive substances being introduced here and, and the very fact that we have receptors to even be affected by these substances genetically is very, very interesting to me. And uh, I really can't, uh, you know... Um, applaud McKenna's thinking uh, enough. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake and his whole idea of morphogenic fields, and there's lots of subjects that I, I know that you're very uh, very keen on as well that um, I feel really have a, a place in ufological thinking and in theorizing, and that's one of the reasons why I think the trickster material kind of slides in nicely uh, around some of these, uh, these other figures that are not you know, normally associated with ufology, for instance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if nothing else, um, sighting uh, a UFO is completely, it's it it's a uh, what's the word? It's it's a uh, novel experience. And what's what's a more novel experience than something that just makes you question everything that you've, you know, based your view of reality on? And this is what McKenna talks about. And this is yep. what um, you talk about in your book. And the, and this is what um, even Valet, for that matter, he had a matrix of um, a UFO experience, uh, 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 kind of a chart where to place people. And he's, you know, there was a, you know, uh, atmosphere, uh, what, effects on the area, uh, you know, the time of day, all this. But there was one that nobody ever includes, which was effects on the witness, psychological right. effects, <laughs> lasting effects. Nobody right. talks about that. You don't that. see that on a MUFON sighting form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I've talked about this, and you've heard about it, too, which was... You know, it might be time to include the what's the 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 uh, subjective in UFO reports rather than just the objective. Right, and and because of uh, being such a, an aficionado of Valet's work and 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 some of the other people that we talked about, I have been saying for years that I feel that the experiencer is more important than the actual event they experience, and it's the cumulative effect on the culture. That I think is is where a lot more work and a lot more research and a lot more thinking needs to be done about the effect of these things on people. You do get into some of that with the abduction literature, but again, I don't think enough follow-up work is done. And I'm I'm a little lax too on following up on some of my cases. I do tend to uh, stay it, 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 not friendly with people, but I do try to stay in touch with them. I try to keep them at arm's length to a certain extent. Right, right. Um, I do like to check back in with them and see how they're doing. Um, I have ranchers that I've known now um, since the early 90s that I'm still in touch with uh, that have had cases and 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 law enforcement officials that I'm, I you know, every so often I'll give them a call and say, hey, how's it going? And and, and you, try to, you try to have a, a polite sort of... Um, uh, rapport with uh, witnesses and it's pretty amazing sometimes what what people will will say you know um, to you and say you know well you know I was thinking about what happened you know 10 years ago whatever and it's 
you know, it's really had this effect on me, or it's made me think this, or uh, one guy, you know, had ritual occult uh, sign left at one of one of the early cases uh, of cattle mutilations, and that was really a major uh, changing uh, point in his life. I mean, he became a born again Christian. He became extremely devout. Uh, so, so you do see some pretty dramatic, uh, you know, effects of these uh, events that they have on people. And I think the experiencer is more important than the experience. I've never heard anybody say that, but it distills a lot of stuff that I've talked about with people and some of the things I think about. And, and you know, people have to know that when I talk about these things with Chris, and Chris mentions them, it's not because they're hard and fast rules, like let's throw out all the other stuff and just concentrate on what people are thinking and feeling. That isn't, that, no. No, <laughs> yeah. no it's, it's a consolation. It, it's, it's really giving... Um, a 360 degree, uh, a, a four dimensional quality and depth to your to your work. Why just get the the peripheral, you know, nuts and bolts information when the real the real nutrients of the potential are are lying underneath the surface? And you know, I, I really applaud people like Linda Howe and 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 others who go out and and sort of arrive in a particular location where something's happened and they get all this wonderful uh, data and, and these great interviews. But then she's gone. Um, and one of the things that I felt was my biggest asset of being uh, an investigator was actually being a local in the San Luis Valley. Right. People do. They could call me up. It's a local call. They could always call me. I wasn't somebody coming in and, and cherry-picking cases or being mercenary about things. Um, they could trust me. If they said, don't use my name, I wouldn't. Um, and, and, and It's amazing. Once you get the trust of a local community, um, how much headway that that will give you automatically in the eyes of people there, especially when weird stuff is constantly going on. Um, people need a place to turn to. They need someone to talk to. And oftentimes they're priests or they're guidance counselor or their folks or their best friend or girlfriend, it, it just can't supply them with the, the quality and depth of, of interaction that they need to discuss some of these things. And, and people are affected by these events. Um, I, I think as we're moving forward in time, kids tend to be a little bit more um, nonchalant about things. You'll find this on Native American reservations. I've been doing a lot of work lately on, on the res. Uh, reses in the southwest um and and people do i i don't think it, it doesn't jar them as much because these types of of things are are somewhat uh talked about in their culture mm. whereas they're laughed at in the modern world huh. um, there is sacred star people tradition in most native societies and it's easier for them to talk about these things amongst themselves but if you're an outsider you don't have a, a chance and so being a local in a particular region really was one of the major uh, contributing factors for me being able, for instance, to get 157 people to go on the record uh, for my first two books. Uh, that's a lot of release forms uh, that people <laughs> had to sign. And, and uh, you know, Hunt for the Skinwalker uh, is such a wonderful book about the uh, Sherman Ranch case that uh, George Knapp and Colm Kelleher wrote uh, in 2005. Right. But it's a world-class science outfit, you know, doing world-class science, supposedly, and they can only get four people to go on the record for the entire book? I mean, what's wrong with that picture? 
Well, maybe people oh. are a little more scared of an authority type, such as a scientist, even if they are interested in talking to them about it. Um, because there are certain things associated with an academic or a scientist that are not associated with somebody who just says, well, I'm a writer, I'm interested in this stuff, and uh, if you want, just uh, drive over to my house, you know? Right, but, uh, you know, I guess, I, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's that's probably true. I just don't see, I don't see a lot of people in, in the field really getting, um, unless they're pulling from media sources, I don't see them uh, getting... Uh, People are getting more and more afraid to uh, to be out in the open about this stuff. I, I thought I was seeing a, a reverse of that trend uh, in the mid to late 90s, but I think it's it started to get more conservative again. I think with the rise of the Bush years and uh, you know just the weird stuff that's going on within the military industrial complex, and, and I think people are just uh, getting more paranoid about things, and uh, and for good reason. <laughs> Can you blame them? <laughs> Yeah, no, not really. I mean, it, that's why it behooves somebody that it wants to find out more about this and make these connections like you have um, to become more personal with the people that they're interviewing. And it, like you said, it's it was a lot easier. Well, I don't know it was easier for you, but it was easier for people to talk to you because you lived there. Why did you move there in the first place? Because of all the weird stuff or because... No, not at all. No. Um, actually, I moved to Santa Fe and... and uh and just couldn't stand it. I was only there for three days, and I had <laughs> in the San Valley, and they said, come on up, we've got an extra bedroom, you can stay here for a while, see if you like it. And I had visited there uh, about three months prior to that, and I remember you know, driving up that 12-mile 12, 12 road to the mountains, to, to the town, uh, to Crestone, to thinking to myself, who could live here? This place is carnivorous. It's, you know, and and come to find find out that no Native Americans would live there year-round because uh, they thought anybody that wanted to live there was crazy. And uh, maybe 40 below in a teepee and moccasins, yeah, it would probably be pretty crazy to try to live there. But uh, <laughs> it's it's definitely a carnivorous environment. And uh, I didn't think I'd be there long. And it was, you know, it's one of the poorest areas in North America. When I when I arrived there, my county had a, a average mean income of less than 9000 a year. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I didn't make a, uh, you know, a fortune uh, spending all my life savings uh, running around trying to get to the bottom of this stuff. Believe me, I spent a hell of a lot of money. Um, so the subject anyway, kind of found you. Know, you. It's, it's all part of a process, and, and who am I to argue with it? It's, you know, I wouldn't change it, change a thing, and 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 you know, I, I really do feel that I'm on, I'm on to something. I'm, I'm really, I feel inspired. I feel jazzed about. Uh, exposing this whole um, idea of tricksterism as being a causal force behind many of history's most amazing paranormal uh, types of events and, and constellations of paranormal entities. Uh, I really do feel that this is a major step forward. Mac uh, Tonez uh, is another uh, a researcher who I really respect and admire. His whole idea of crypto-terrestrials, I think, is, 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 is going down similar, a similar vein and down a similar path that I'm going on. Mm -hmm. And um, I really think that after 60 years uh, plus, that people can't get the fact that everything that we've been trying to do to get to the bottom of the UFO mystery, for instance, it, uh, the wheel is off the vehicle. It's already spun off the road. It's already bounding down into a canyon. And, you know, we've got to do something different. We have to come up with creative out-of-the-box thinking. And uh, without sounding like I'm patting myself on the back and, getting double-jointed here, um, I, I do feel that I'm doing that, and, and I'm, I'm very proud of this book. It's, 
it's definitely it, it'll make the reader <laughs> it'll make you think it, it definitely will there's some there's some real cool stuff in there well i think so I'm on, and i'm only like 20 pages into it i in fact the the um if you do get the book which you should um just reading your friend david perkins um intro that it, all of his intros to your books are excellent but this one just really makes you want to you know it's one of it's like okay this is great let's get to what chris has got to say it's incredible you know it's it, it's a great intro for people who maybe don't know anything about the subject yeah uh and it then knows. you do the, the that thing in the first chapter and the reason i liked it and what you told me was um you know, let let's get the people who are serious about this and scare off the people who aren't. <laughs> well, you got to define your terms, and unfortunately, when you're dealing with something that's 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 about as Michael Jackson as as you can get, uh, it's not male, it's not female, it's not young, it's not old, it's not black, it's not white. <laughs> uh, it's it's very difficult to put that in such a way that people get it, because something that is is self-negating. Is just a very attempt of, of trying to define something like that is not easy, and uh, I think I do a pretty good job of bringing together uh, some pretty strong research and uh, rely, like I said, on on some real giants in anthropology to to uh, help me through the minefield of of, of reinventing and redefining the trickster. Uh, basically, that's what I'm doing. Uh, I, I think the trickster does evolve; it's not static. And I do think it's becoming conscious. And I mentioned at the very beginning of our talk here that Trickster's main job for thousands, thousands of years has been to bring technology uh, down from the heavens uh, for the betterment of humanity. I think that because the Trickster um, has got us to a certain point technologically where we don't need Trickster help with technology anymore, I think we might be supplying the Trickster with technology. Yeah, you mentioned this on Coast to Coast, which we uh, can get into. Yeah, because then, then you get into some really interesting stuff, and you can apply Valet's uh, thermostat control mechanism to tricksterism, and it, and it works perfectly. There's lots of theories uh, out there that that if you factor tricksterism in, it, it tends to even make more sense when you apply sort of a general sort of theory and, and, and use the trickster as, as a as a subjective sort of departure point uh, for that theory to, to, to give that, to flesh the theory out and to, and to show examples of the theory that uh, that's when it really starts to get fun. You know, at least for me it does. I'm, I'm kind of weird, but oh well. <laughs> no, well, you know what? The, the, I think the new stuff is going to come from weirdos. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I've, people have called me weird since I was a kid and I, I hope I'm doing something that makes me happy and, and, well, it does make me happy, and is helping other people understand weirdness that they're uh, interested in, just like I am. And then you have something, somebody like Chris, who actually, you know, goes out there and talks to people that are experiencing the strangeness and providing a service right. for them, actually. Um, but in, in the midst of that, myself, yeah. And in the midst of that, you know, hopefully some of this stuff moves forward. Max, a very, you know. I guess people call him kind of a weirdo, but the the thing is that to be interested in some of this strange stuff, you have to be kind of strange. <laughs> oh man! You know, and well, sometimes it'll that. drive you over the edge, and you can't talk to anybody. But <laughs> some people get this nice balance where you can say things 
that makes sense to people who are interested, like like you or John Keel or Valet or uh, uh, even you know Whitley Strieber for that matter, who I wrote a very short uh, defense of the other day on uh, UFO Mystic. Because I think he's yeah, introducing really, uh, stuff that's uh, that's important I think that he's people coming around. He's really starting to realize that uh, you know that there's uh, there's something very very uh, ancient and magical uh, going on with uh, it, you know specifically with his his, his experiences. But in general, um, I think he's really starting to get that there's something infinitely more complicated that's operative. I for some I got that impression within the first two or three books. The first one sort of, but by um, uh, communion transformation and what was the third one in that first? I think secret school maybe. No, no, it's communion transformation and uh, God, I can't remember the last one. Anyway, in that last well, secret school, I know was was one of the early ones. Right, right. That, I think that was yeah, after the was in there somewhere too. third in the communion trilogy. Somebody's probably yelling it in front of their computer right now. But the thing is that he he basically came up with that stuff at that point. He said this has been around for a long time, and you know he could have been reading other things too obviously it's been around for a long time it's part of us even though it's in other it's very closely intertwined with us and that runs through your work that runs through max work and a lot of right. you know not a lot but a few other people and well, i have that belief too yeah yeah uh, and i have that belief really too. did influence my thinking uh, uh yeah you know what we talk about that how how did you know what do you think akil obviously we know what you're going to say and how did that influence with you uh, your work. And did did you know about him early on, or did you come into it later? Oh yeah, I've been reading I've been reading Keel and Ballet books since I was a, a kid. Um, I, I've been a, a fan. I, I would devour and, and Castaneda too was another uh, writer that I, I really I just couldn't wait for the next book to come out. Oh yeah. Uh, in, in terms of this this type of subject matter, um, um, John Keel I felt uh, towards the end of his life got a little bit bitter and he got pretty negative. Um, I, he, uh, his, his kind of flying in the face of the ETH sort of put him on as an outsider, and I don't think he ever really reconciled that. I, I think he, he um, you know, his like the Eighth Tower. There's there's some pretty outrageous things in there. Um, his earlier work, I feel uh, uh, more of an affinity uh, towards. Uh, in fact, Mothman, I, I kind of loosely modeled my writing approach uh, for the Spirit Valley um, after Mothman would be the closest equivalent I could think of. Uh-huh. And uh, very, very influential. Valet as well. I mean, Valet, I've always felt, uh, is one of the brightest thinkers in this field, uh, at least in the logical field. And, and I, I do feel he's a little bit um, maybe intellectually arrogant uh, and, and does... It, it tends to be a little rigid in his thinking, but uh, it, it, at least it's out of the box thinking and it's creative thinking. I mean, you know, he he has <laughs> my, my permission to be as rigid as he as he as he wants to because he really uh, he he he's a thinker. Well, that's what a maverick does. Yeah, exactly. My phone keeps beeping. What? <laughs> Somebody's trying to call me. Anyway, oh. um. Yeah, so, go ahead. We yeah, can't hear um, it. So. Valet and Keel were very influential. Um, of course, Brad Steiger was another uh, writer who I, I, you know, grew up uh, reading his work. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was just agreeing with you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, well, I, you know, I, I really do feel that all these guys have have brought it to a certain level, but they haven't taken that that full circle step. You know, instead of 
trying to plot all the way around the 360 degrees. What I envision my, uh, what I've done is just turned around. Instead of going all the way full circle, I'm just turning around and looking at where all this stuff maybe maybe uh, uh, coming from in terms of the primordial sort of causal uh, area. Right. Um, yeah, people complain that I don't uh, announce who I'm talking to, although most people listening probably know. We're talking to Chris O'Brien, author most recently of Stalking the Tricksters, and we have been talking about tricksters and um, how they're, how that phenomenon or that force or what archetypal um, character is uh, a kind of a touchstone for the paranormal. Um which leads me to one of the questions that were that that I uh, pounded out here about an hour before we came on the air here. Um, sp- specifically, you know, your your book says that the, the connection between the UFOs, Bigfoot, Springheel Jack, ghosts, everything is in in some sense, in many senses, is the trickster. But you know, what specifically is that connection? Is it a force? Is it? Uh, um, is it active? Is it, you know, I would suspect it's all these things. Yeah. Um, well, to use Valet's um, um, analogy of paranormal phenomenon, I'm substituting UFO events for, you know, more of a broad uh, classification of paranormal phenomena. Um, you, could, uh, you could equate to um, a thermostat. When things get too hot in a room, the thermostat comes on and the AC comes on and off. When things get too cold, the heater comes on and heats things up. Well, if you substitute um, hot for negative and uh, uh, cold for um, for positive, let's say uh, demonic forms versus angelic forms, uh, you come up with an interesting uh, analogy uh, that, that uses his particular mechanistic uh, interpretation. And uh, you find some, uh, some pretty interesting things. Uh, Cultures tend to, when they get uh, real static and they get into a place of, of um, you know, maybe a lot of technological growth, but the society and the culture and the uh, um, and, and the way the way people interact with one another uh, tends to get a little static, and, and the structure gets um, solidified, status quo, and, and control mechanisms tend to really exert their force, similar to what was happening, let's say, at the end of the industrial uh, revolution. Uh, say towards the end of the Victorian age, what, what, what did you have happen? You had the rise of spiritualism, um, which could be considered some sort of cultural thermostat um, supplying novelty and change and shaking things up. And, and the result of 40 years of, of, of the spiritualist movement uh, in the 18, you know, late 1870s, 1880s, 1890s uh, into the 20th century, you had a... Uh, uh, it, the, the Victorian age uh, had it basically was ended uh, with with this influx of new thinking. This would just be one of many examples that you could bring uh, to the conversation here. Um, so I think that there is an interconnectedness uh, between all these forms in that they tend to all share one common attribute, and that is they're shapeshifters. That is the one correlation that I found that is almost through all potential trickster forms around the world. And this, I think, is a really important point. Um, once you look at the whole concept and subject of shape-shifting, if you factor in phenomenal-type events and entities and, and um, 
legends and myths and stories that feature shape-shifting, I think that that is an instant clue that um, should alert you that you're dealing with, with a, a, a trickster, a manifestation of trickster energy. Basically, this is an energy or a force, and it is personified by the various subcultures and given names, whether it's Wendigo, or whether it's a vampire, or a werewolf, or a poltergeist. Um, these are all attempts by us subculturally to try to explain what we don't understand. And if it can shapeshift, that is my litmus test for it being a, um, a, a potential trickster form. But where is who has control of the thermostat, or is it just existing as no, one? Regulating. Oh, okay. We so it, it's, a, it's it's all you, coming from the collective unconscious. Oh, so basically, um, we're it, it's like it's part of the the um, psychological body, and it's um, like something that controls your heartbeat, or if you're too like you said, like a thermostat. Exactly, and it's all it's all a process that ebbs and flows based on how static the culture becomes. As soon as the culture becomes too controlled, too static, and it doesn't evolve um, in a way that, um, you know, keeps up with their technological um, progress, let's say, then the trickster energy tends to manifest and break down structure, break down the control system and the and, and provide novelty and change into the system so it, it, it sort of jerks us forward can you give us cultural pro okay process. can you give us an example historically and one recently of that well, uh, uh, of that process <laughs> absolutely um, well um, I believe you I just want for the yeah, benefit I, of the audience so many um, yeah you know the whole the whole rise of monotheism I think um, in the urbanization of culture was the first major hurdle for the trickster to, uh, to, to deal with. For thousands and thousands of years, we lived in a very pastoral uh, matriarchy that um, ebbed and flowed along with the, um, the wonderful rhythms of nature. And uh, it wasn't until we, you know, we, we also had a pantheistic um, uh, god view, goddesses and gods, as opposed to a monotheistic god. And, as soon as we saw the rise of of urban cultures in Sumeria and the Harappan cultures, then we we, we see the uh, the shaman who was the uh, the conduit uh, between the individual and, and the cult in the subculture and and the gods and goddesses or, or, or the higher forms. Um, the shaman was replaced basically by the priest class, and the priest class basically what they did they're like the uh, the doorman at the club that let you in, decide whether you can come in or not, and then tell you what <laughs> to do once you're in. Yeah. Um, they're, they're the, um, you know, the representatives of your spiritual process to the heavens. In other words, they're the controllers, uh, colonizing spirit, if you will. And I think that you've, uh, you know, Mohammed in the rise of, of, of Islam, for instance, would be, uh, in one sense of the words, you know, Salman Rushdie, please help me, um, <laughs> would be an example of, of a tricksterous element that, that arises um, within a static structure that then um, creates novelty and change, and then not necessarily uh, for a positive or negative uh, purpose. It's only how we then uh, take the ball and run with it. And, of course, now we have a clash of civilizations. Um, <laughs> you know, we have... 
a million Iraqis, uh, and someone has yet to explain to me why we have killed a million people in a country that um, never attacked us. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's many examples. Uh, Roswell is a classic example of a tricksterish event that has totally changed the way the culture views UFOs. Out of 300 potential uh, witnesses um, that have been touted in, I don't know, how umpteen books, um, only five ever mentioned anything that could possibly be interpreted as alien or extraterrestrial in nature. Yet look at what the effect of that event has had on our culture in terms of our thinking about UFOs. The, the Orison Wells uh, 1938 radio broadcast would be a classic example of a tricksterish event. These, these are all, um, I, I'm using these examples of human tricksters inadvertently or by design applying tricksters methods and and uh and tools and um and using them to uh to shake up the uh, system shake up the status quo and um you know i mean i could go on and on and on right I mean, there's, there's snippy the horse the first you know unusual livestock death that was ever publicized a classic case um piltdown man the cardiff giant um <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's tons of them. Of course, I have you know quite a number of them uh, in the book. Yeah, well, there's tricksterish stuff too. I mean, if you look in um, Rebirth of Pan they, um, and a few other books, how about uh, out of place artifacts like um, like oh, yeah. uh, you know Roman um, carvings found uh, buried in the in the Midwest or or um, a Latin cross with a I mean a cross with Latin on it. Found in a in a in a uh, bank of dirt in Arizona when they were building a, a road, which is supposedly. Right. Or how about the, the the sandstone tablet with the Tibetan prayer that they found out at the Zuni Pueblo uh, recently that I just went up and saw a couple of weeks ago. Right. You know what I asked you about that? It's like one, where did they find it? Two, how do they know it's Tibetan? Three, how do they know know it's you know something that was put up there recently? And four, how does somebody know that, it, well, like I said, it, it, that it's actually Tibetan? All these questions come well, up. It's, you it's answered them for me, but why don't you go right ahead and do it again? Um, <laughs> I mean, I even recognize the final line, which is Om Namah Shiva. Um, I, I actually have somebody that has a high-res photograph that's on their way back from Kathmandu with a translation for me. Huh. Um, it was found by uh, one of the chief uh, Zuni uh, archaeologists who helps coordinate archaeological digs on the, on the, the res. It was found at the uh, the ancient Pueblo site of, I guess, what, what they think Coronado uh, was looking for, uh, Cibola. Um, it was found um, by someone that, um, you know, has a pretty darn good credentials. I don't think it's ancient. I don't think it's from the 15th century when the Pueblo was last occupied. I think it has been there for a while, um, but I don't think it's an ancient artifact. The very fact that it was found, um, I, I, I feel, is important. Um, even if somebody buried it there a year ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, the very fact that it's there tells me that there's something magical and tricksterish about it. Because just uh, a week before David Childress and I went up there to see this thing, um, we didn't know this, but uh, the head, one of the heads of the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, the Red Hat, Fire Clan, if you will, tradition, mm -hmm. dedicated a very interesting stupa right outside of the Zuni lands there, um, south of Gallup, um, and it's a hollow stupa, and it's 
it's one of the few stupas, uh, the only one actually that I've ever heard of, that you can go inside of it. Most stupas are solid. And this is set up so that you can go in and do uh, geomantric earth exorcisms to combat earthquakes, pestilence, drought, floods, bad storms. And, uh, and then <laughs> a week later, we go up there and we see this incredible, very enigmatic uh, arch- uh, you know, artifact. And um, you're still trying to find it. Well, the thing is, it's when I first asked the question, you seem to indicate um, who gives a shit if it's old. The fact that it's there is interesting enough. Now, if we find yeah. out that it's old or whatever, that's another thing. But, you know, uh, did some Indian person, put a Native American person, put it there to screw with people or what? That's another thing I found out by just a little bit of time talking to people at the, and I've told you this, at the Dulce, um Reservation, the Hickory Apache Reservation, you it, and it's like these witnesses. You can't just go start asking people weird questions about stuff that's happened to them. One, you know nothing about their culture, probably. Two, right. you don't—they don't know who the hell you are. And right. three, their culture is not based on asking a specific question and answering that question specifically based on exactly what you said. It no. doesn't run like no, everything that. Everything is all very subtle, and in a grunt can be like a paragraph. Uh, to a Native American. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, let's put it this way, Greg. Some of the, the the most famous Bigfoot tracks have been found in the most remote areas by people that just happened to be uh, going along there. If it was a hoax, you would think that somebody would do it in the dirt behind the uh, the local McDonald's or uh, somewhere where they they were assured that somebody would find it and maybe create a, a hoax or you know create some sort of stir. But not in the middle of BF nowhere, where one or two rainstorms and, the, and, and they could be gone. I mean, why go to all the trouble to do something in a in a in a remote area uh, on the hope that somebody's going to find it? Where this thing was allegedly found was, you know, not on the beaten track. I mean, this was in a, an old uh, ruined pueblo site. You had to walk all the way up this hillside and and you know go through all these cactus and. You know, it was just not in a place that you would imagine somebody would try to perpetrate a hoax. They wouldn't, you know, half bury it and stick it in this particular location. Now, that's going on the assumption that the story that he told me about where he found it is, is, is true. And I do believe him because he's like one of the, you know, he's a, an ex-commissioner and he helped, uh, um, you know, negotiate the, uh, the Zuni's uh, rights for um, gambling and, and he... They don't want a casino, so they take their the number of machines that they're allotted, and then use them, uh, sell them to other reservations. He was in charge of that whole process. I mean, he's a mover and shaker on the res, and, and mm-hmm. very uh, very schooled guy. Uh, you know, like I said, he's an archaeologist, and uh, he would have nothing to gain uh, by exposing this particular artifact to outsiders. Um, the only reason why he told us is because he know he knew that David, uh, you know, Childers is one of the world's top diffusionist archaeologists, and uh, and that you know I was very very interested in uh, some of the other events that um, you know he's experienced, including incredible UFO sightings up there. Uh, oh, here we here we go. UFOs are going coming into the mix again. What the hell are they doing there? Oh man, <laughs> there. Oh man, there was one that crashed against a cliffside uh, back in the '30s, uh, and it was there for a couple days uh, before it was, wh- whoever was piloting it were able to fix it and fly away. And all the natives knew about it, and they were trooping out there and spying on it. And, 
it's by this really cool uh, spot that I want to go uh, spend the night at called the Cave of Fear. It's like a taboo spot in this canyon that nobody's supposed to go there because that's where the UFOs tend to uh, seem to appear and disappear. Oh, the area. place the place where that um, crescent-shaped uh, rock area is? Mm, that's about 30 miles away. Uh, oh, okay. That, that was the petroglyph site that we saw with the, the obvious Bigfoot uh, petroglyph and, uh, and Thunderbirds and the UFO... Uh, Petroglyph. Oh, I looked it up. Um, was it found on Doa Yalane? If that's I'm how you sure pronounce that it. Is. That's it. That's the uh, Mesa and Zuni that they kind of retreated to during the uh, after the Pueblo Revolt, I believe. Um, yeah, this would have been before the Pueblo Revolt. It's right before the Spanish first ventured up there. Okay, because they were up there, then they moved away from it, and then they went back to it for a little while before things cooled off. Right, yeah, it's that big mesa that's, mesa, uh, yeah, that's near the bottom Zuni. of the mesa, and then they moved to the top of the mesa. Where this was found was the uh, the old pueblo at the bottom of the mesa. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's all totally over, you know, filled in with sand. There's no real there's standing stones there, which are very interesting. There's like a wall of uh, big slabs of, of sandstone that are plumped into the ground. Damn it, Chris! I got I got to go up there with you next time. I'm, we got to make a trip. Uh, yeah. we're, we're actually going to open a world e- explorers club uh, there. <laughs> 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 we are. They've invited us to to do that. So. Well, they don't. Yeah, have, you know what? They, they they haven't gotten their due. The Hopi have been stealing everybody's thunder in the Southwest for a lot of years, and the Zuni have. There's only three books on the Zuni. And well, the Zuni. Well, they 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 can kind of blame it on themselves because they didn't right. want to deal with anybody. No. They were oh. kind of like, leave us alone. Anytime somebody came by, they would say, "Oh, the gold's over that way." We heard, "Go over that way." <laughs> yep, that sounds like the Zuni. Which is why, yeah, you know... They're pretty amazing. I, I met a really amazing guy up there uh, who actually was a bit of a fan of my work. He read my Mr. H. Valley books. And oh, okay. He actually uh, introduced uh, himself to me at the last Laughlin conference and found yeah, out that he was like, the head him. of engineering for the Department of Interior's big civil projects on Indian reservations. He was like a higher-up uh, you know, civil engineer for 30 years. Really bright guy. And he'll probably be the next... Uh, governor of uh, Pueblo there. Well, maybe there'll be some a little bit more openness, I guess, at least in a in a careful way, you would think. Uh, there must no, be a he reason. Wants, he huh? wants to write the first book about Zuni by a Zuni. He yeah, well, see, them. good idea. And of course it won't tell the whole story, probably. Oh, but you said, but it will, though, because they're afraid of the culture disappearing. Yeah, exactly. What I want to do is supply them with all the technology to record all their own stuff on on their own time. You know, supply them with the cameras and the recording equipment to record all all their traditional knowledge, um, and then hold on to it. But just make sure that uh, that um, that it's captured. They're already losing really important rituals, and ceremonies, and and stuff. I mean, they he rattled off a whole list of uh, of dances and, and ceremonies that they can't do anymore because the elders that knew them died, and the information wasn't passed along effectively. Yeah, well, they have a very rich trickster yeah. tradition, and I think. I don't know if the Hopi started or the Zuni or just kind of a cross-cultural thing where they have, um, what, and of course you know about it, uh, during the ritual dances there's always mud heads there which are basically going in and, and telling everybody to not take things so seriously, right in the middle of the most serious um, ceremonies going on. And there are the tricksters. Right. <laughs> which makes it even more festive. I knew, th- I knew there's a reason why 
You you know that ring that I always wear, that Sun Kachina looking ring? Uh-huh. It's from Zuni. It's a Zuni artist. It actually says Zuni on the back of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's with me. I've got me. a really cool Zuni belt buckle. Wow, oh, th- those are expensive, man. You, well, yeah, it, it wasn't when I got it. I've had it for 20 years. but. Right, right. Uh, but they are now. Uh, You know what? We've got about 20 minutes left, so maybe we should get back to this. <laughs> We're sort of on the subject. It's okay. Um. <laughs> There, there's something. Well, I think it, it all ties in. It's all, yeah, it all, it's ties all in. part of the same big, uh, you know, big, big uh, equation. I think. And the stuff we've been talking about, obviously, you know, somebody say, "What? They found a sandstone thing with Tibetan, you know, uh, inscription at Zuni." You know, that th- this is one of those little things that's mentioned that people will probably be more interested in. However, I, um, I've been talking. I've known you for a while, and over the time I've known you, you've started to, and I think you probably do this beforehand. That you've started to basically call out the trickster and um, use some of the uh, the weirdness's own medicine to try and ex you know it, it make it exhibit itself if you know what I'm talking about basically right, yeah. well, basically yeah. um, uh, doing things in your research to um, provoke some kind of response could you talk about that a little bit <laughs> well I was that too blunt I don't let's, know let's put it this way Greg this is not a um approach that I would uh, uh, suggest to most people. Um, I have a, a bit of a background in um, protection um, energy and how to properly um, go about potentially uh, um, sticky situations and, and possibly even dangerous situations uh, and, and feel protected and not have any sort of fear or trepidation sort of worm its way into the process that might cloud my thinking or color my, my work in any way, shape, or form. You have to be pretty darn fearless to, uh, uh, <laughs> really, you do. You have to be kind of fearless to, to deal with some of these subjects uh, in the way that I've kind of decided to approach it. And uh, people often ask me, well, damn, why don't you, like, why don't you think, I think Walter said to me, actually, uh, oh, the trickster, when he found out I was writing a book on the trickster, he said, oh, that sounds dangerous. I mean, that's a knee-jerk reaction that most people have. It's like, ooh, you better watch out, you know? And it's like, I don't think so. I'm having fun, you know? But but to some people, it could be, uh, it, you know, this stuff will get to you, and it can eat you up. So you have to really have a dispassionate sort of um, really objective view of all this stuff. And, you know, I've I've thought about being proactive um, um, in the last five years. I've done quite a bit of haunted site investigations around the country, and uh, one of the things that we're working on right now is some proactive approaches uh, to elicit responses from what appear to be disincarnate entities, ghosts, if you will. One of the things we're working on now is, is going to um, Tennessee to a, uh, an extremely uh, haunted site um, that used to be a tuberculosis hospital. Oh, yeah, and, one of those. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, <laughs> bring in recordings and blare recordings of iron lung machines and go around smoke cigars and flip Zippo lighters and have a stand-up tragic go in and talk about a life battling asthma and do some live performance art and then do our EVPs and see what we come up with. <laughs> well, that so sounds that like a great example. idea. Well, the thing is, you know what, you hear about a lot of these things about Bigfoot or about ghosts 
or whatever, and you almost never or maybe never hear about somebody that was either like permanently injured or or anything really. I mean, it, it, there there are people that are driven crazy, definitely. People that go over the edge. With the with the exception of the Colima. Um 1978 through 80 cases at the mouth of the Amazon in Brazil. Um, there's been very, very few cases where people have been killed um, as a result of interaction with uh, what we would normally uh, call UFOs. Well, there's one in, in Salvador Frechado's book, that, and I don't know where the story came from, about a guy that was hit with some ray. He comes home, and then it's, his flesh starts to fall off his bones, and he dies right in front of his family. Now, I don't know where that story came from or if it's even true, but that's one of the few I've actually heard well, of. Well, there were a number of people that, um, that died like that down in Brazil. Um, Bob Pratt's book uh, goes into it. Um, Jacques, Jacques Vallée has a chapter in Confrontations. Oh, right, yeah. He talks about the, the chupas. And, um, I mean, there are cases, but they're extremely rare. And, um, you know, I... Uh, Without sounding like Stan Romanek or uh, Billy Meyer or something, <laughs> yeah. I do feel that I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a man on a mission here, and I do feel a tremendous sense of protection. Um, people ask me, well, don't you ever get scared? The only thing that scares me is the human element in all this. <laughs> Those guys are frightening. Yeah, yeah. well, th that would make sense, you know. It's funny, my, yeah. my mom told me a story once when they were, she was a child. They asked in class, um, what's the scariest animal? And she said, one kid said, um, man. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Freaked everybody you know, out. I, you can't let this stuff get to you because um, it, it will eat you up. Uh, once, once you allow that bug to, to start, that worm to, to get in there, um, it's, I've, I've seen it eat people up. Uh, I can name a few researchers that I've seen fall by the wayside over the years because they just couldn't handle it. They just short-circuited. And uh, I'm a really strong uh, person. And uh, in terms of my, uh, I'm very grounded. Got my both feet on the ground. I don't, you know, ebb and flow too much. I'm I'm pretty steady. And uh, I'm, I'm just lucky that way, I guess, for the type of work that I do. And so it, it's this stuff excites me and 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 really jazzes me and really inspires me. It doesn't scare me. It doesn't um, freak me out. I've had freaky stuff happen to me. And, of course, you have that knee-jerk visceral response in the instant. But then you realize, oh, my God, I just had the most incredible thing happen to me. How cool, you know? Yeah, something's um, paying atten back attention to me after all this time yeah. of trying to figure out what it is. And it's not giving me some It's giving me kind of a... Um, uh, yes, we know you're here. Yes, we know you're paying attention, and that's exciting. And you know, apart from, you know, why, why be scared of that? I mean, that that right. that's an exciting. And you haven't been hurt. Um, nobody's coming and pulling you out of Validation your bed. You know? and you're on the right track. Yeah, exactly. And that 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 would seem more exciting than saying, oh no, no, you know, they're coming to get me. Um, right. I did early on in my investigative work after, um, you know, after I did have some. Uh, uh, you know, some real kind of paradigm-shifting realizations. Um, I did feel kind of out out on a limb a little bit because I didn't have the experience, the knowledge. I didn't have the whole years of of, uh, of actually being active in this particular realm uh, to lean on. And so there were a few points in that first, like, three or four months where I started getting real paranoid. Uh, paranoia is, is 
one of the things that will eat you up the quickest um, in this round. Happened to me, and too, I Chris. very early on um, to have a good support network of trusted advisors and people that you can go to for guidance when things might get a little a little uh, dis- disconcerting. Harry. But I, I, haven't, I haven't been in a place like that in years. So, you know, this is part of my learning process, and I got through it. And I was very, very lucky to have... Uh, People like um, you know David Perkins, um, Tom Adams, Linda Howe, in her own sort of uh, wonderful dragon queen way, um, <laughs> to, to help me hold my hand, show me how to do things properly, and uh, and give me a crash course in how to be a good investigator. And I you know I, I I'm forever thankful for Linda, Dave, and Tom for that because they really did help me immensely. If you Not get... everybody has that. Uh, right, right. Fortunately, has that so. You mu- you must have a support system. I read a book a long time ago about um, yeah. people that had really made a big difference and it kind of bucked the system for a while. And it was very important to have sort of a cadre of people, that, like you just said, that you can go to and and share information with and have gone through some of the same things and um, are not are, yeah, and, and they aren't judgmental, judgmental about it. Sorry, what? They don't laugh at you or judge you for yeah. for your quandary. Yeah, I was about to say, and they're not judgmental about it. Because I, I went through the same thing, and I, I can't remember anybody telling me not to take any of it so seriously, but it just got to the point, and this probably happened with you too, that you get you just get tired of being paranoid, and you just say, well, I'm still here, nothing's happened, I still have my health, um, and I'm still living in the same place, and what it's not really made the whole hell of a lot of difference, it's just been interesting and exciting. I'd be so bored, Greg, if I didn't have cool, groundbreaking, cutting-edge stuff to, to do and think about and and, uh, and work with. Yeah, that, there's a question. You know. The glutton for excitement and, and, uh, and you know, the muse. I, I, that's why I have four or five jobs, um, why I have so many hobbies and so many interests, because I, I, I just, I really don't like being bored. So if you have something that will fit every one of your moods, then you, you never have a chance to be bored. I think more people should, you know, get a creative outlet or several. Um, there's too many people out there that are just caught up in the mundane and, and the world has has dropped a, a veil over their over their sensibilities and their awareness and, and that's when the, that's perfect place for the trickster to come in and, and, and mess with your head. I think everybody should learn to to pick up on the signals when the trickster is, is is coming into your life and supplying you with with anti-structure and, and supplying you with with liminal uh, conundrums and and those are the times when you really have an opportunity to really leap forward in your process and that's if if the trickster teaches us individually anything it's how to recognize the energy in the force and and how to act upon it and how to really be inspired to change things up to to keep things fresh to 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 constantly be looking at things in a new and different way. And that's basically what, what the trickster is all about. And I think a lot of these paranormal um, entities and phenomenal um, types of events are there to shock us into really looking at things from outside of the box and to, and to keep us really moving forward in our thinking and to be inspired. I mean, nothing, there's nothing more inspirational than something that totally blows your mind and you can't understand it, at least for me. Yeah, I mean, but do you, think, all people. do you think that... These these paranormal events are doing that to people. I mean, most people ignore it. You know, most people ignore I think UFOs. Collectively, it's all it's. See, the trickster works over millennia. 
Um, the, the trickster is a conditioning process. It, it, it doesn't. It, the success or failure of the trickster's uh, role in our culture does not rise and fall on single events. It can be severely or adversely impacted by single events, but it's it's the cumulative effect of these things happening in the culture and the way that they're the culture then spreads it um, um, almost like the, the game telephone. Um, you know, <laughs> even the the actual events themselves might subtly change, but it's the effect of, of, of the overall flow of energy that, that, that is really the key here. Well, it reminds me of a um, quote from somebody, and I can't remember it, um, about uh, maybe about what they thought was aliens, and I don't think it was Strieber, maybe it was, but the, they stress the infinite patience. <laughs> what we would call they patience. Huh? They'd have to be infinitely patient to deal with a primitive, violent culture like uh, you know we have on this planet. Well, maybe it's not patience. It's just like you know we're not hooked into the results, cause, effect, time thing that people are. If you know what I mean. Mm, you kind of threw me there. It almost sounded self-negating. You almost sounded tricksterish to me. No, what what the force would be this trickster force, or whatever you want to call it, however it manifests, is not concerned about um, let's do this and get a result in this amount of time. It's more like we are existing right. the way that we are existing, you're existing the way that you are existing, eventually things will work out the way they're going to work out. And right. um, we're manifesting ourselves, and I, I'm doing this as a metaphor, manifesting ourselves the way that we are, and not trying to force an issue, although some people say that's like, oh, they're trying to change us, they're trying to bring in a new age, or whatever it is. It's just because of the natural progression of things that things change. They've been changing over thousands of years. And this trickster right. element is um, intimately connected with us, but it's also got, you know, agents or a life of its own or whatever, and it could take, like you said, hundreds of years or thousands of years or maybe millions of years to do whatever it's going to do, and the time really doesn't make any difference. Right. I, I think it's 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 kind of outside of time. It's right, right. It's that, that whole concept, like if you go to, to Hopi land or or you go to uh, um, to some Native Americans, they don't even have words for future and past. Everything is in the now. Everything is is in eternal now, and I I think the trickster operates in that particular realm of everything is is is. You know, everything that's been and what will be is all contained in, in, in that, that, that evolving now that we're living. Yeah, and here we run into the problem of language. <laughs> right. <laughs> language trying yeah, to express these concepts where you kind of basically run around them. The, um, the Dean Radin thing about killing a sledgehammer with a, uh, killing a fly with a sledgehammer. You know, you, you've got language and concepts that are not amenable to whatever this thing is, in quotes, and we're trying to wrap our metaphors around something that exists outside of them. So you kind of have to, yeah. like you said, like the Native Ameri American thing, where you have to kind of talk around a subject to get a sense of what it is or how to deal with it. Exactly. The trickster, the very subject of tricksters, is like a Western version of uh, Zen Cone. Um the, the trickster is the sound of one hand slapping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one 
one hand slapping you in the side of the head when you're looking at something else. That's what the trickster's job is, man. It's to, to smack you on the on the on the head or you know spank your butt, you know. I don't know. I've got. I was in a temple in Japan in the the famous. I think it's Roanji, that has the rock gardens, the uh-huh. ones that everybody always sees. I mean, there's hundreds of them, but the famous one in Kyoto. And I'm standing there next, you know, at this little case that's next to the gift shop. There's this big stick in there with Japanese writing on it, calligraphy. I looked at it and I said, that's a Zen whacking stick. I need that. And I picked it up and it's hanging in my house right now. It's one of those sticks that the priest walks around with. And if you start to fall asleep or something or not paying attention or whatever, during, on the head. he comes by and goes smack. And it's a big stick, too. The thing weighs a couple pounds. It's a big pine <laughs> stick. Yeah. And I oh, like that great. thing. I mean, it's a it's a good metaphor, I think, for what we've been talking about. You know, it's the the the, the trickster. This paranormal stuff is like a big Zen whack, whacking stick to smack you in the head when you stop paying attention or stop, you know, or exactly. or you know, get off the the path of you know why are we doing what we're doing and why do we think what we think. Yeah, it's it's like the perfect alarm clock uh, come wake up call. You know, bam! It just breaks you out of your 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 you know, that days, everybody, you know, I just, one thing that I've been having a problem with the last few years is looking at so many people in our lives that we see every day walking around in a state of waking coma. It's like the people, I think, are falling deeper and deeper and deeper asleep. I mean, the fifth the fifth column is, is falling asleep at the wheel. <laughs> uh, the, control, the control system on the planet is becoming more... Um, you know, entrenched and 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 it's us against them. It's fear mongering. All this stuff just lulls you into this place of needing a good whack from the Zen whacking stick. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 as soon as I saw it, I was like, I know what that is. I want it. You know, and and it was hard to get it back in the plane. They were like, What the hell is this thing? <laughs> We actually had to put it in a poster tube, yeah. and my mom had to sit in a wheelchair with it so it would seem less <laughs> less threatening <laughs> than it was. If they knew what it really meant, <laughs> maybe they wouldn't have allowed it on the plane. <laughs> yeah, well, at least it wasn't a big pair of knitting needles, and they took them away because they thought you were going to knit an afghan. Yeah. <laughs> that is a new joke. I have not heard that one. You didn't make that up, did you? I I heard that years ago. <laughs> My God, it, it's new to me. I mean, I, I guess yeah. I as a little know. grandma, she couldn't believe that they took away her knitting needles. They told her that they, they, they thought that uh, she was going to knit an afghan. Mm, perfect. <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. And, and it's it's another thing we we're talking about where a joke will take a serious subject like the stupidity of dealing with of that kind of thing, and and show us what it is. You know. Yeah, talk about a trickster. Look at that dude that they busted for trying to blow the plane up with his shoe bomb. Uh, Richard, How many millions of people have had to expose their mismatched dirty socks in <laughs> <laughs> thousands of airports because the one dude lit a match and tried to light his shoe bombs up. <laughs> and, you know, and there's a whole other theme there with a hot foot, you know? Yeah. Yep. It, it it just goes into so many areas. I mean, you start looking at things in different ways, and you realize how insane things are and how funny yep. people can be and how great things could be if people didn't take shit so seriously, you know? Yep, yep. 
I mean, I'm from the Rodney King school. Why can't we all just get along? <laughs> you know? and you being out in L.A. could probably appreciate that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny. I, I was doing an interview the other week, um, and I can't remember who it was with. Uh, oh, it was with Sesh Hari, who wrote... Um, uh, 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 now Walter's going to kill me. Um, what's that? Wonder of the Worlds. Uh, we were talking about Mars and about the Red Planet and about um, right. some of that stuff. And I look out the window and the station fire, this huge fire that was in Los Angeles the last couple of weeks. I looked out the window right, and I could right. see it 10 miles away. I could see these, you know, 100-foot-high flames running up the hill. Yeah, that's scary. It was a weird little moment there, you know, and it, it, the yeah. whole the whole town seemed like it was wrapped in some, uh, for a few days, wrapped in some strange film noir apocalyptic thing. If you just looked out the window, so yeah, I mean the, the the trickster and the weirdness is alive and well here, and maybe that's one of the reasons why. I'm oh still yeah, here. I mean in the land of fruits and nuts, I mean you better expect the trickster to be uh, alive and well and having fun. Yeah, well just people Roman Polanski. Yeah, <laughs> people are they're celebrating it, you know, and they they're living it, and they don't realize what it, you know a lot of ways what it what a ridiculous joke it is. Uh, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, Chris, it's 10 o'clock, and um, the next show should be in here pretty soon. Is there something else you wanted to mention that I glossed over or um, some contact well, information? You know, we, or? we got a little far afield, but, you know, I, that's, that's okay. why I love your show, Greg, is because it, it's like a conversation. I, I, I forget that there's an audience. Um, you just have such an easy, effortless manner, and, and this is my favorite show to be on. You say that's all the shows. No. <laughs> huh? I bet you say that's all the shows. Uh, no. I'm just joking. I don't, I don't say that's all the shows. I short-circuited this one guy up in Canada. He, he ended up hanging up on me. He was just, I, I just can't buy into this. I can't listen to this. This, this is outrageous. I, I, I can't deal with it. <laughs> like, oh, boy, I, I, better, I better get my, uh, my routine down a little bit better. Well, you know what? You came in and you were a zen whacking stick on that guy's show, and that's probably what should have happened. Yeah, I you know what? That just my website got a lot of hits that night. Yeah, that just for the main, for the fact that you scared the the host, you probably got a lot more hits on your website and people are interested in your book just because of that. Yeah. <laughs> so don't change and I've been anything. On show four times, you know, it wasn't like I was a first timer or anything. Yeah, well, don't change you know. anything. Well, you can see, you know, you you said the impact this book was going to have it. And you're right in some quarters, and in some quarters it scares the crap out of people. And then for you know weirdos like me, or or or, or um, who did you say you just talked, Micah Hanks or something like that? It's it's quite exciting. Yeah, yeah, or Mac, and I mean there's a bunch bunch of folks out there. Of course, I lump myself in with all you guys, but um, I, I really do feel I think uh, the bottom line is we need more creative thinkers. We need to get outside of that box. We need to be subjectively objective uh, in dealing with a lot of this stuff. Huh. We need to look for correlations. We need to look for connecting points. And we got to stop taking everything so damn seriously. I mean, this is all part of an evolving process that's magical. And if people, you know, would always keep that in mind, um, you know, I think some of the, the, the bitter infighting in, in the paranormal field, especially in ufology, would fall by the wayside. People would tend to co-opt their efforts a little bit more and, and share data and really try to get consistent with approaches. And I, I just really think that, um, that that we're at a really crucial point right now. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, if, if, 
if people consider me as part of part of the answer and not part of the problem, I, I mean that's the greatest compliment I could ever hope for. So, you know. Well, obviously you're part of the answer. I wouldn't want to have you on this program so many times, and um, you're of course always welcome back. And 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 like I always say at the end of the shows with you, um, especially we could go on for hours. But oh gosh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we That's sh- what I love about about talking with you because you you you're so up to speed and and you're just able to look at this stuff, you know, from a you know, a, a wry kind of organic, dispassionate uh, view viewpoint, and, and and that's so refreshing. <laughs> yeah, well, so many people get on their their broadcaster voices. And, well, Mr. O'Brien, what is it with the trickster? You know, it's like, <laughs> come on, dude, lighten up. You know, I mean, really, just lighten up, have fun. Yeah, you know what? It's it's something that um, I wrote about. It's like, well, what are we doing this for? Well, I don't know what we're doing this for. I know why I'm doing it because it's interesting. It's never boring, like you said. I've met some of the greatest people, um, and people that have taught me things. It's like you finish your school or whatever kind of school you're in, whatever the programming uh, uh, media that you went through, and then if you're really into it, go out and you know school yourself some more. Yeah, exactly. You and, know, and just get some some guidance along the way. And yeah. People you can rely on when you need somebody to bounce things off of, you know, and that's that's important as well. You you can't operate in a vacuum in this realm. You do you do need you do need uh, you know resources and you need uh, recourse uh, in terms yeah. of you know testing out your thinking or maybe going going uh, somewhere where you can really rely on on non judgment judgmental guidance and help. But that's really important too. There's some sage advice from. From an old timer, Chris O'Brien, who's been doing this for years, you stupid young whippersnappers who don't know what the hell's going on here and taking everything so goddamn seriously. Anyway, uh, Chris. Well, actually, they, the, the kids don't take it seriously at all. They, they, no, they don't. They could care less. Of course, there's aliens. Well, you know, come on, get out of my face. That's another. That's another thing I wanted to mention. It's like you know what I find is when I speak to like a classroom, or or at a library or something like that for, you know, teenagers, something like that. My you favorite talk. Yeah, they don't, you know, I, I wish yeah. they would have more, you know, hostile thing questions, but they don't. It's kind of like, God damn it, nobody ever told me this. You mean right. that there's something to this and that, the, you know, it's not just the X-Files and all that, that you can actually go out and find some of this stuff out for yourself and you found it out and it goes against everything, well, a lot of the stuff we've been told you know that's exciting right. when you're that age, and if you can hold on to that, that's so great. And and you've done uh-huh. it, you know. Uh-huh. And that I and it's infectious. And it's infectious, and it's it, it. You know, if you can infect two or three out of the three thousand people you ever talk to, eventually one of those people are going to come back and say, "I've been looking at this for a while, and I've talked to a few people, and look what I've found." And they might break the damn thing open, you know. Exactly. You never know. Exactly. So that's another great part of it. for somebody else is probably the highest, the highest uh, goal that I would have. Yeah, well, to inspire people to go out and do their own work. And yeah, so make, make their own breakthroughs. I think that's probably how Keel felt feels about it, and 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 um, um, Robert Anton Wilson, Valet, all these people we've been talking about. It's like you came back, you know, maybe at some point you came back and told me something I didn't know about based on something that you read that I talked about years ago, and that 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 circle continues. And it's it's right. it's wonder and it's so cool to see when that happens and it happen you know it happens more often than people would think 
in this field. And uh, like you said, no, you know, stop the fighting and just stop taking things so seriously. And you know, if that's the yeah, message, keep an open mind. Great, I mean, yeah, you know, and keep an open mind. Don't be so caught up in your own in your own uh, trip. You know, just chill out. You know, yeah. people just need to chill out a little bit and just work <laughs> together. You know, we're all part of a big team. You know, I, I consider myself a team player, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, solo sailors out there. Yeah, exactly. Some of them may come up with incredible stuff, though. But uh, whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> like Keel. Uh, yep. Do you have Do you have any um, information you want to give out? Like, if people want to report to you the the uh, insanity well, I, that they're yeah, going I, through, I, or? our strange planet o u r strange planet uh, dot com is my website. I have a really cool deal on there: a book, a DVD, and a data disc uh, package deal. And of course, you can get my book there. Um, you know, a signed copy, and um, and also the the website has a ton of cool stuff on it. I've got just hundreds of articles uh, that deal with. Uh, you know the stranger, uh, the stranger side of the planet, but in in a, in a context like we've been speaking uh, uh, about tonight, and and I do really invite anybody uh, out there to uh, to visit my website, and of course to uh, visit uh, one of my favorite websites, which is UFO Mystic. I just oh. uh, you know on my my uh, my bookmark bar, and I do make a uh, habit of checking in every day, and uh, you know that's that's about it. I you know I'm not in this to uh, you know. This is not a career by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, it so, shouldn't be anybody's, you know, you know. Yeah, so I can't really hawk too many wares. I've got books and DVDs and some Mayan art and other things on my site. But uh, yeah, do visit my store, you know. And and if you if you feel so inclined and have deep pockets, hit that donation button on there. That that will always help. So. Right. Other than that, you know, the book the book kind of lays it all out there. It was really a labor of love, boy. It hurt. Yeah, the book is stalking the tricksters. And uh, that's just out, uh, what is it, like about two weeks ago from um, Adventures Unlimited Press. Correct. And you can find that on Chris's site. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on the Adventures Unlimited Press site, etc. Chris, I thanks. Huh? Yeah, correct. Thanks so much for being on. And, of course, you'll probably be on again for a fifth time um, before too long. Always here. looking forward to it, man. Anytime we can sit down and have some quality time talking is great, man. I, like I said, this is my favorite show, and anytime uh, you know you want me on, just give me a holler, and I'll drop what I'm doing, and I'll be there. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Cool, man. All right. Bye, talk Sigurd. to you. <laughs> yes, and thank you, Sigurd, for letting us use your phone. Yeah, really. Thank you. <laughs> All, right. All right. Have a good night, everybody. All right. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Beep. All right. Chris O'Brien. Talking to us about stalking the tricksters. Go pick up that book. I'm not even 20 pages into it, and I'm already, you know, devouring it. Um, I just finished uh, Graham Hancock's Supernatural finally, and this is a good companion volume to it. And I really mean a companion volume because you, there's not a lot of crossover, um, literally, but there's a lot of crossover um, uh, thematically, uh, spiritually, intellectually, whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, pick up stalking the tricksters. It's Radio Mysterioso, and it's a little after, it's 10 after 10, the new show, new show, the next show. Radio Antenna isn't in yet. Maybe he will be. If not, they'll be uh, uh, archival stuff running here, stuff from uh, Kill Radio. And it's amazing we're still here at Kill Radio, and I'm glad we are because I like doing a live show. Even though the podcast available, people can, people can pick that up at uh, RadioMysterioso.com. This interview will be up within a couple of days, 
and uh, I might not be here next week because I think I'm going to try and get out to uh, Monument Valley, where I haven't been for a while. Speaking of the Southwest, and I, I think I'll take a side trip through Zuni, possibly. Uh, see if I can arrange that. Anyway, thanks for listening, uh, and tune in next week or the week after or whatever. Um, oh, actually, in two weeks, a week from Sunday is going to be uh, Mr. Fab from the wonderful music site, uh, Music for Maniacs. We're going to play weird music. And the week after that is Miles Lewis, who runs the uh, Anomaly Network, which uh, hosts actually hosts Radio Mysterioso, so we have to uh, continually thank him for that and has from, uh, has been a friend and a colleague for many years. And uh, Miles doesn't get to talk too much. He knows a lot about this stuff. He's way into it, and... Um, It'll be another conversation with a friend about weird stuff. So let's sign off here. What did I have queued up here? Huh. I thought this would be, be a good uh, break song uh, in the middle, but um, oftentimes I don't take a break because I just enjoy the conversation so much. So uh, this is um, a, <laughs> a parody of They're Coming to Take Me Away called I'm Normal by a L.A. radio host from the 50s and 60s who billed himself as the emperor. Anyway... See you soon. Thanks for listening, and uh, stay tuned for Radio Antenna if they're on, and if not, archival stuff. <laughs> come and take my brother away. The men in white picked him up yesterday, but they'll never come take me away, because I'm okay. <laughs> I'm normal. <laughs> I painted everything in my house purple, my fingernail found, my potato pillars, my... Stay away from my frog! I got an earthworm in a fruit jar, and I make long-distance calls to Ringo Starr, and I make funny faces to scare the kids. Boop! <laughs> Save lightning bugs and Katie did. They'll never come take me away, because I'm normal. I'm okay. <laughs> I play tiddlywinks with Dracula's bat and jump rope with a cross-eyed cat. I play Bob Dylan records upside down and keep my fish out of the water so they won't drown. <laughs> my brother didn't know them things. That's the reason they took him away. Took him away yesterday. Hey, he's crazy, but I'm okay. <laughs> I fill my bathtub with strawberry jam and feed my squirrels sugar-cured ham. And I spread rumors that Stalin is dead. I said he was wearing a sheepskin when he died in bed. <laughs> Made that up. I eat alphabet soup with a tuning fork and shine my shoes with Chinese pork. I'm okay. You'll never take me away. I'm normal. <laughs> You show me a pig on the highway and I'll show you a road dog. Step on a crack and break your mother's back. <laughs> I play the violin with just my thumbs and feed my lizard waffle drums. And I throw stones at telephone poles and hide mouth balls and gopher holes. I teach my bulldog to wear sunglasses and drink champagne and dance with Indians to make it rain. They'll ever come take me away, cause I'm normal. <laughs> I draw mustaches on Playboy bunnies and light bonfires with Sunday funnies. And my cellar's full of Japanese spies. And I've got a red wagon with wings that flies. I change into a werewolf after dark and chase the pigeons in the park. I soak my feet in cranberry sauce and call my parakeet Betsy Ross. I'm normal, will never take me away. <laughs> they took my brother away yesterday. He is a babbling idiot.